0: Welcome to season two of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. It's still irreverent. It's still weird. It's still the show that you love to tolerate. Thanks for listening. Episode 34 of the Knowledge from the Couch Podcast. Kyle, your host, as ever, as intrepid as ever, as we march our way halfway through space month on the Knowledge from the Couch Podcast. This week's episode, you guys is about Project Gemini. Now, we talked about Project Mercury last week, and it was actually one of my favorite episodes to do. It, it turned out to be a, a real interesting one, and and, and the content is, is fantastic, and I recommend if you haven't, if this is the first time you've ever listened to this show, if you, say, today searched out space or Gemini or something along those lines on uh, your podcasting mm-hmm. app because you were just wanting to listen to something and somehow you fell into this podcast firstly welcome to the show uh, it's great to have you here but go back and listen to the episode before this on project mercury so you can get you know some context into how we're going to weave the story a little bit um and you know some of those characters i call them characters even though they're real people some of those guys are going to you know play an effect on this episode as well, and will play an effect in the Apollo episode next week. So before you listen to this one, you know, I would highly recommend you go back to last week's episode on Project Mercury to get your footing and get the uh, the foundation as to what we're going to talk about this week. And then pop on back here and listen to this episode. So without further ado, I don't have anything else to really go over as we continue space month on the knowledge from the couch podcast guys this week project gemini stick with us Project Gemini. So last week, like I said in the intro, we were talking about Project Mercury being the United States' first foray into space. Now, as we talked about last week, this is sort of a recap, a a very short recap on how that whole thing went down. Uh, The Soviets launched a satellite into space, satellite named Sputnik. Now, The big thing about this wasn't necessarily that it was a satellite itself, although that had its own, you know, uh, uh, surveillance and um, espionage capabilities on its own when you think about it that way. But for the most part, what everyone was focused on was the fact that not only did the Soviets put something into space like that, but that they had rockets capable of firing something that could leave Earth's gravity and put something into space. This was a huge, huge thing, and it scared the shit out of everybody on this side of the world. So much so that, independently of 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 you know the uh, government program, which would eventually become NASA, the military, um, which technically also is a government program, but you know they're they're not exactly the same thing, started working on their own projects, and eventually all of that culminated uh, in Project Mercury which was, you know, the the objective was to get men into space, just like the Soviets were doing. And for the most part, Project Mercury, while it was extremely successful, was still a step or two behind what the Soviets were doing. The Soviets were the first nation to get a man into space, and they were the first uh, nation to get a man into space and keep them there for a great deal of time longer than the Americans ever did during the Mercury Project. Now, Despite all of this, the United States learned a great deal from Project Mercury, and decided to continue the uh, the, the space projects, which are now basically fully uh, fully endorsed by President Kennedy, who unfortunately was assassinated in 1963 um, before the beginning of Project Gemini. But before he was killed, you know, he very famously said, "We're going to put a man on the moon before the end of the decade." And the plan was then laid out after Project Mercury that Project Gemini would be the second um, culmination of, of projects for manned spaceflight. And then Project Apollo, uh, which will be the, the subject of next week's episode, was going to be the culmination and finally put you know a man on the moon. So where does that leave us today? Where does that leave us with Project Gemini? You think of Project Mercury and you think of, you know, uh, the final frontier, boldly going where no man has gone before, pushing shit into space and not knowing what you were going to get out of it. And you think of Apollo as sort of this, you know, we know Apollo 11 obviously is the first moon landing, you know, Apollo 13, a very famous uh, uh, film about what could really go wrong in space. What where is Project Gemini go? And unfortunately, even though there's a lot of cool stuff that happened during Project Gemini, it is often thought of as sort of the redheaded stepchild, the forgotten middle child of the three programs that culminated in the moon landing. And that is just kind of the way it was. But Gemini was easily if as important as Project Mercury, if not more important, because of the things that were accomplished during the Project that would lead to success in the Apollo project. Now, Project Gemini, the big thing that that a lot of people like to say, and even NASA officially says, is that Project Gemini is the bridge between Mercury and uh, Apollo. Gemini is the bridge program to the moon, so to speak, because all we really ever did in Project Mercury was originally put people in suborbital flights, so they didn't even really make it up to space fully, and then the the longest you know project Mercury mission was was barely over a day you know so really it was just low Earth orbits, um just making sure we could actually shoot a rocket into space with a guy in it, and go around the Earth a few times and then get back safely. Good, perfect. We can we can. it's like it's like when you put your uh your 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 water fins on your arms, and you jump out in the water and hope the water fins keep you alive so you don't drown, and then you get out there and you're like okay, cool, okay, cool, we're, we're, we're good, we're good. Now maybe let's try this with a more sophisticated piece of technology, or maybe let's dive in without the fins and see how far we can go. You know, Project Mercury is basically dipping your toe in the water of space. Project Gemini was going to be something a lot more complex, where a lot of other things that were going to be important during the Apollo missions were going to be tested in the Gemini missions. So a little background on Project Gemini. The project was... Uh, originally, you know, conceptualized in 1961, still during Project Mercury. Now, like I said before, um, with President Kennedy talking about putting men on the moon, when he talked about that, he said that on May 25th of 1961. Um, obviously, while well, all this original space landing stuff or space, you know, um, traveling stuff was still going on, and that was basically the genesis of the Apollo program as well. And they knew that there had to be something, you know, in between the two programs and that in between basically eventually formed itself into Project Gemini. Uh, Its first flight didn't take place until 1964, so there was a development, obviously, from 1961 during Project Mercury and beyond into what would be Project Gemini, which would run from uh, 1964 up to 1966, so two years of work on Project Gemini, and would in- eventually become one of the most successful uh, uh, stints of NASA's, you know, uh, uh, formation as a as a group as a project. Um, project Gemini was extremely extremely successful. The major objectives of Project Gemini were to demonstrate endurance of humans and equipment in spaceflight for extended periods, at least eight days required for a moon landing, but usually up to the maximum of a whole two weeks in space, um, to effect rendezvous and docking with uh, uh, with another vehicle, and to maneuver the combined spacecraft using the propulsion system of the target vehicle, so basically docking with something and then using the thrusters on the thing that you're driving to move the two things around. Uh, to demonstrate uh, EVA or extravehicular activity or more commonly known as spacewalks outside the protection of the spacecraft and to evaluate the astronaut's ability to perform tasks there, if at all. And then finally to perfect techniques of atmospheric reentry and touchdown at a preselected location on land. So you can see just inside the major objectives of the Project Gemini that the big thing was going to be: Hey, how long can we put dudes in space? Can we have them out there for an extended period of time? Because with Project Mercury, they were barely up there for any time at all. How long can we have guys up there? How were the? How will their bodies, you know, uh, respond to being in space for such a great deal of time? You know, now we have to not just shoot a rocket up into space and in a capsule and let it fly around Earth for a few times and come back. Now we have to actually have that capsule stay up in space. And not only that, but our pilots have to, you know, maneuver these things around and dock them in a more, much more complex way. Um, we got to get guys out into space because we just need to see, A, if our suits and, and everything pressurized is going to be sufficient enough for men to actually leave the pressurized, you know, environment of their vehicle and let them do tasks, you know, just to sort of simulate what it might be like on the moon. Obviously, it's going to be a little different because the moon has gravity, whereas, you know, space technically does, but doesn't. Um, when you're far enough away from Earth, you're you're not really at zero G, quote unquote, but you're much lower G than you were going to be on the moon. Either way, you need to get out of the pressurized cabin to see if you can just do anything in your spacesuit. And then you gotta practice being able to actually land something on the moon. You can't just shoot a capsule up at the moon and say, oh, good luck. Hopefully we just crash this thing to the goddamn moon and hopefully we can get back from it. So this is the fine tuning and uh, fine details section of the space program in the United States. And it's called Project Gemini because not now, you know, with Project Mercury there was one man sent up into this capsule strapped into this bad boy. Now with Project Gemini, you're gonna have two men. In the capsule uh together and obviously when you get to the apollo program you're going to have uh, up to three men in the capsule at once but you know you, we needed to test you know a, a bigger space vehicle that had, you know had more guys in it sort of simulating what the crew's tasks were going to be during their missions to the moon so when designing this capsule you know how did this all come about so obviously they have the blueprint of the mercury capsule Uh, And NASA is trying to figure out how they're going to make this new Gemini capsule to, you know, house two men and and still be something reasonable where scientific experiments can be um, carried out. Interestingly enough, a Canadian man, Jim Chamberlain, designed the Gemini capsule, um, who was previously a crewman on the Avro, Canada's Avro era, you know, uh, fighter interceptor program, which is a Canadian sort of jet fighter program. That just kind of went under, but he joined NASA later on with 25 of his own senior engineers after that program had been canceled and eventually became head of the U.S. Space Task Group's engineering division and made Project Gemini. The other person that was extremely involved in Gemini's uh, design was a man named Gus Grissom. We mentioned him in Project Mercury. He is one of the Mercury 7 and Gus Grissom was a full steam ahead for Project Gemini. Once he figured out that Project Mercury was going to end and that he wasn't going to have another flight with them, he went full bore into wanting to help design the Gemini spacecraft, to the point where a lot of the other Mercury astronauts that were his uh, his contemporaries during that project dubbed the Gemini spacecraft, the Gus Mobile. So Gus Grissom just was Mr. Astronaut. This guy just was all about you know, the space program and going into space and getting to the moon. Gus Grissom was basically, in terms of astronauts, the face of the space program. And he lent his expertise with Project Mercury in helping to design the Gemini capsule. And so this capsule was basically designed by a Canadian guy and Gus Grissom. NASA then selects McDonnell aircraft to actually build the thing. And they started building and construction on this thing in 19... uh, sixty-one designing, building, you know, going through the testing process, and finally delivering a final product in nineteen sixty-three. This spacecraft was eighteen feet five inches long, with a launch weight varying uh from seventy-one hundred to eighty-three hundred and fifty pounds. The Gemini crew capsule, which was referred to as the reentry module, you know, the pipe, the part where. The guys are in, and and once it's launched into space, it's going to separate. They'll do their stuff and then re-enter backwards just like you did with the Mercury capsule was basically a gigantic version of the Mercury capsule. And if you look at the pictures, which I'll post when uh, the episode comes out, the Gemini capsule looks a great deal like the Mercury capsule, just bigger. But unlike the Mercury capsule, the retro rockets, electrical power, propulsion systems, oxygen, and water – were all located in a detachable adapter module behind the reentry module. This is a major design improvement in Gemini, and it was to locate all internal spacecraft systems in modular components, which could then be, you know, independently tested, popped off, popped on, you know, the whole coolness of the modular thing, which is is a whole new, you know, th- just, just it's a game changer for these sort of things because the Mercury capsule was so was designed like so specifically for each mission, and NASA was figuring out, hey, if we're going to run a ton of these fucking missions, we can't just make a new capsule perfectly molded this, that, and the other thing every single time we want to launch. That's just going to cost way more money than we already are spending, which is a pretty decent chunk of money to begin with, so making the capsule something that can be modular, that we can add stuff to and take stuff out of, is going to be able to not only help us you know, save costs here when we don't need a piece here, but we need a new piece there, but it's also going to open up the amount of experimentation that can be done in space because we can add and take things away um, at will based on the uh, objectives of each particular mission. The Gemini capsule was also the first astronaut carrying spacecraft to include an onboard computer. Now, like we talked about last week, the Project Mercury, there really wasn't any onboard-type computer on the Mercury capsules. All those men really had was uh, radio contact with uh, ground control, and ground control would basically give them direction, and then the men inside the capsule would follow that direction and do things the way they needed to do them now gemini has an actual onboard computer uh aptly named the gemini guidance computer to help facilitate management and control of these mission maneuvers so now these men can sort of do things independently of ground control ground control can actually um upload uh, things they want to do a lot easier rather than basically playing a gigantic long game of two tin cans and a string basically this computer, sometimes called the Gemini Spacecraft Onboard Computer, or the or, or the OBC, excuse me, was very similar to the Saturn Launch Vehicle Digital Computer. The Gemini Guidance Computer weighed 58 pounds, Jesus. Its core memory had uh, 4,096 addresses, each of those containing a 39-bit word composed of three 13-bit syllables. Numeric data was 26-bit, two-complement integers. All of this means that this computer could speak to ground control, but very slowly and obviously is going to be, you know, in 1963, an extremely, extremely primitive computer compared to anything that you might ever see today. Your shitty, even non-graphing Casio calculator is more complex than this computer was, but it was the time. Which is the most amazing thing about this entire thing is that guys are just shooting shit into space with a fucking abacus, basically. And they're like, ah, let's see how it goes. And it went fine. You know, apparently you don't really need the most complex uh, computer systems ever to make these sort of things work as long as you have solid engineering. Originally, also, the uh, Gemini aircraft was actually planned... On being sort of a uh, paraglider, once it re-entered uh, Earth's atmosphere and got to the point where it got past, you know, the, the 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 terrible friction of re-entry, they actually had planned on putting sort of a, a parachute glider-type wing that would be able to be deployed, and then the men would sort of uh, uh, steer the thing down to land on solid ground. Um, Eventually, this plan was completely dropped, and the original uh, type of landing, which Mercury did and Apollo would also do, where you just popped parachutes out and landed at sea, where you could then just be picked up, was eventually also used for Project Gemini. Project Gemini would launch these vehicles into space ...on a little rocket called the Titan II rocket. Now, you remember from Project Mercury, the Atlas rocket was one that launched those uh, vehicles into space. Uh, eventually, the Titan rocket was uh, debuted in 1962 as the Air Force's second-generation ICBM to replace that Atlas rocket and used a uh, different fuel propellant system using nitrogen, tetroxide, and hydrazine instead of the liquid oxygen uh, mix that Atlas used. Um, this did create a couple of problems event- at, at the very beginning of it, but those problems were eventually solved, just because that particular mix in the Titan II is a little more toxic and a little more ridiculous, um, especially when you're trying to make these rockets man-rated, meaning you know being able to launch actual people into space, not just whatever you're going to feel like launching there. So now that we've covered basically what the vehicle was, let's talk about who was going to be carried up into space on these vehicles. Now, when selecting the new crop of astronauts for the program, uh, NASA wanted to give first shots basically at and for the, the Mercury veterans. Now, of the original Mercury 7, only four guys remained from those seven, and all of them, you know, would eventually fly in the Gemini program, those men being Alan Shepard, Gus Grissom, uh, uh, Gordon Cooper, and Walter Shearer, uh, the others, some of which had just retired completely. Uh, John Glenn uh, went to go serve in Congress, and a couple others went to go work on different projects that didn't have anything to do with space flight. So you had the, uh, the, the Mercury basically veterans getting first shot at being Project Gemini astronauts, and then they go along to uh, to pick up a whole bunch of other guys to help with this, including some names that you're going to be familiar with as I read them off. Um, Neil Armstrong was a Gemini uh, command pilot, so there you go. There's a very famous name there. Frank Borman, Charles Conrad, Jim Lovell, another name you might know, James McDivitt, Thomas Stafford, Ed White, John Young, Buzz Aldrin, you know that guy, Eugene Cernan, Michael Collins, Richard Gordon, and David Scott, most of whom were either Air Force pilots or Navy pilots, the exception of course being Neil Armstrong. Like we talked about in the last episode, Neil Armstrong was a military pilot but had since retired from the military and was a civilian pilot when he was tapped to join the space program. So as they got these men together, they basically made a plan saying that there would be a primary crew for each Gemini mission and then a backup crew for each mission uh, the same way, and then eventually the backup crews for the mission before would eventually become the primary crew for the next mission um, until the end of the Gemini program where they kind of uh, shuffled some guys around uh, at the very last mission to make that one work, but... How these missions went down. First of all, Gemini was extremely successful. There were absolutely zero failures when it came to these launches and getting men up into space and making things happen. Now, it doesn't mean that there weren't problems on the ground sometimes and some missions being scrubbed here and there, but the fact of the matter was in 20 months, so basically not even two whole years, 10 different Gemini missions were uh, uh, manned missions, I should say, because there were actually 12 Gemini missions, but t- uh, 10 manned missions and two unmanned missions were launched into space, all of which were successful, which is pretty amazing. Gemini 1 and Gemini 2 were the uh, first two missions of Gemini. They were both unmanned. Gemini 1 was just the, the first test flight of the new Gemini capsule, and the spacecraft was intentionally destroyed upon reentry just to make sure we can get it up there and orbited around a few times, and then, blew. okay, good to go. Then Gemini 2 was a suborbital flight, so not even a full space flight, to actually test the, the new heat shield. Everything went good there. And then Gemini 3 was the first manned mission. Gemini 3 uh, included astronauts Gus Grissom and Young. Um, this was on uh, March 23rd of sixty five. lasted four hours, and just made three orbits. So the first easy-peasy flight, just get them up there. And orbit three times, bring it back. Everything went well. Gemini four has the as the distinction of being the first uh, uh, spacecraft to have the EVA, or like we said, the extravehicular activity, or spacewalk by American Ed White. He popped out of that capsule and did a 22-minute spacewalk, the first man to ever basically walk freely outside of any sort of protective capsule in space. This happened during Gemini 4. This mission lasted uh, four whole days. Then Gemini 5 uh, of August in that same year of 1965 was a week-long flight um, with astronauts Cooper and Conrad. This was the first use of fuel cells for electrical power Uh, evaluated the guidance and navigation system for future Rendezvous missions, and they did an entire 120 orbits of the Earth. Their mission lasted seven days and 22 hours. Then, interestingly enough, you skip Gemini 5 to go straight to Gemini 7. Now, the reason this happened was because the original Gemini 6 mission was scrubbed because they were going to test the Agena docking target, which is originally... The, the this sort of just thing they would launch into space, and it was going to be target practice for these men to go dock with and do stuff with. Uh, Gemini 6 was scrubbed because the launch of the Agena docking target uh, actually had failed, so then they decided to launch Gemini 7 instead and use it as the docking target instead of the Agena vehicle, which is kind of a ballsy maneuver if I do say so myself, but they did do that. So basically... Gemini 7's original mission was a, a, a long-term mission. This was going to be one of the longer-term missions of the Gemini program um, to see, basically, if, if if humans could spend you know two weeks in space. Basically, so it was supposed to be Gemini Six. You know, they launched the Agena docking target, then they launched Gemini Six, who's going to you know dock with the target, and then Gemini Seven was going to be the endurance mission. Instead. Gemini 7 not only gets to hang out in space for a long time, it also gets to be the docking objective. So they go up into space first. Then Gemini 6A, and A is for, you know, the the second mission of Gemini 6, just like the backup mission, basically. Then Gemini 6A launches a few days later from Gemini 7 and eventually does rendezvous and dock successfully with Gemini 7, excuse me, um, keeping uh, that dock for over five hours, at distances from, you know, one feet to 300 feet, just kind of in between you know, the whole docking situation. Uh, Gemini 7 spent 13 days and 18 hours in space. Gemini 6A only spent a day and one hour because mostly they just were going to use it to test the docking portions. Uh, Gemini 8 accomplished the first docking with another space vehicle. Finally, they got that a Target vehicle up into space, and Gemini 8 was the first one to actually make contact, and dock with that vehicle. This is also the first uh, the first flight with uh, uh, pilot uh, Neil Armstrong, so this is his uh, I- I inaugural flight as an astronaut, uh, and during this mission, this Gemini 8 mission, a Gemini spacecraft thruster malfunctioned and caused a near-fatal tumbling of the craft, one of the scariest moments of the Gemini program, which... After undocking, Armstrong was actually able to overcome, and the crew effected the first emergency landing of a U.S. space mission. So, Gemini uh, 8 only lasted 10 hours up in space because of the uh, near fuck-up of the docking maneuver, but everything worked out fine. Neil Armstrong was able to actually gain control of the spacecraft again and get it back to ground safely, so nothing bad happened. Um Gemini 9A is one of the sadder ones because originally Gemini 9 was supposed to run as normal. The uh, Gemini 9 crew was killed on ground in aircraft maneuver testing. So the backup crew of Gemini 9 then took over uh, the, the crewing of that particular mission. Um, they basically completed more docking maneuvers uh, in orbit They tried three different types of rendezvous. Uh, They did two hours of EVA, and they did 44 orbits of Earth for three days. Gemini 10 was the first use of the Agena target vehicle's propulsion system, so now the propulsion on the target vehicle and not just the Gemini craft. Um, The the Gemini craft also rendezvoused with uh, the target vehicle from Gemini 8. Uh, 49 minutes of EVA standing in the hatch and 39 minutes outside to retrieve stuff from outside the corridor. And 43 different orbits completed, two days and 22 hours of length there. Gemini 11 was the uh, the record altitude apogee. Basically, they reached uh, 739 nautical miles or about 850 miles outside of Earth uh, in general, so a very far far orbit was reached using the Agena target vehicles propulsion system with Gemini to push them that far. Um, During this, one of the astronauts made a 33-minute EVA that far away from Earth, uh, including two hours of stand-up EVA, and they made 44 orbits, uh, two days and 23 hours long. Interestingly enough, um, that record... Of a, of a manned Earth orbit of that far, 739 nautical miles, is a record that still stands today. Now, obviously, humans have been farther away from Earth. Obviously, men went to the moon. But in terms of Earth orbit being that far away, most Earth orbits are a lot lower than that. So these men from Gemini 11 set that record and still hold that record. Then Gemini 12, the final flight of the Gemini program, uh, Jim Lovell and Buzz Aldrin did this flight. Uh, they rendezvoused and docked manually with the target uh, Agena vehicle and kept station with it during their spacewalk. Uh, Buzz Aldrin then set an EVA record of five and a half hours for one spacewalk and two stand-up exercises and demonstrated solutions to previous EVA problems. They did 59 orbits, and it took them three days and 22 hours to do so. None of these things failed, although Gemini 8 got pretty close to uh, failing there. Uh, fortunately, they were able to figure that one out. And a few men did die, like the Gemini 9 crew, which was killed on ground. So the backup crew of, of uh, Gemini 9 took that mission um. All said and done, from 1962 up to 1967, Project Gemini cost 1.3 billion 1967 dollars, which is about 7.3 billion dollars today, making it a nice deal. More expensive than the Mercury project, although to to look at it more, you know, objectively. Uh, Gemini got a lot more shit done in space than the Mercury program ever did. The Mercury program, like I said, was basically dipping your toes into space while Gemini really got a lot of stuff done, including a ton of uh, space docks and uh, uh, maneuvering and EVA and everything that you needed to do for the Apollo missions all got done during the Gemini missions. And interestingly enough, as Gemini came to an end before Apollo started, there were proponents... Uh, uh, people out there that actually figured and wanted the Gemini missions to continue, and actually have Gemini be the missions that made it to the moon, not the Apollo missions. Um, there was a uh, proposed extension called Advanced Gemini by McDonnell Aircraft, the people who designed uh, the Mercury and Gemini capsules. Um, they basically were the the contractors for those two. And were one of the original bidders on the Apollo contract, but eventually lost that contract out to North American Aviation. Basically, they were like, "Well, fuck that. We're just going to keep wanting to, you know, push the development of Gemini further." So instead of like this new Apollo capsule that was going to be designed uh, separate from them, they wanted to say, "Our Gemini capsule is is good as it is. We're going to keep developing it, and we want to actually develop Gemini to be." its own sort of lunar landing mission you know unlike Apollo so you know they they worked on this sort of thing they made a range of applications uh including military flights space station crew and logistics delivery and lunar flights all these different plans um these lunar proposals range from reusing the docking systems developed for that Agena target vehicle um on more powerful rockets and and spaceships uh, which could propel the spacecraft to the moon um, to complete modifications of the Gemini capsule to enable it to land on the lunar surface like Apollo did. Um, all of these things, basically they wanted to use uh, these, these, these Gemini spacecraft to modify them in an advanced way. Overall, obviously this didn't come to fruition, but for a time being there was a slight deviation, a separation. This wasn't just a... Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, one, two, three, boom to the moon. It was one, two, uh, two A and three because you know the the offshoot uh, McDonnell aircraft really wanted to maybe just take Gemini to the moon on its own rather than having to deal with the whole Apollo thing. Eventually, it didn't. It didn't happen. Um, a couple years later, McDonnell is uh, still. ...looking at Gemini and proposed the, quote, Big Gemini or Big G project, where they intended to provide a really large capacity Gemini capsule that could uh, carry up to 12 people inside instead of the two that were carried, you know, during the regular Gemini missions. And they were going to sort of of use this. Now, the the moon landing had already happened at this point, so they were thinking more uh, long-term with what NASA and space travel and everything was going to do uh, going forward... Uh, Thinking of it more as, you know, we want to have these giant capsules to carry lots of people to, you know, orbiting uh, space stations to help resupply, to change astronauts out. You know, this, that, and the other thing, obviously, this also didn't come to uh, fruition. But there, McDonald was trying real hard with Gemini and got a lot of good mileage out of the Gemini program to begin with. So you can't really blame the guys for continually trying. Basically... In the end, the Gemini program was extremely successful. No, uh, no casualties in space. None of these spacecraft blew up or anything bad happened to them. Uh, Ed White became the first American to make an EVA from Gemini Four. Uh, Gemini uh, uh, Seven set that fourteen-day endurance record. Gemini Eleven, you know, shot up to over eight hundred and fifty miles over the Earth's surface, and Buzz Aldrin actually finally proved on Gemini 12 that you could do useful work outside the spacecraft without life-threatening exhaustion. The Gemini program was extremely successful, although it is often forgotten when you look at the U.S.'s foray into space because Mercury was the, the first shot into the final frontier, and Apollo, obviously, is where the successful moon landings happened. Gemini gets forgotten about, although some of the very best space work happened during this program. And now, Ear Fact of the Week. So, since it's Space Month on the Knowledge on the Couch podcast, we are going to do some Space Facts this month. This week's Space Fact is that more energy from the sun, you know, that big giant fireball in the sky that makes you angry because it's, it burns you and, and makes you hot and sweaty, that big old ball of fire, more energy from it hits the Earth every single hour than the entire planet uses in a year. It it seems crazy. There there must be some sort of technology out there that we can that we can use. I mean, I mean, it, it's it's crazy to think, right? But there must be some sort of technology out there that we could use, some sort of panel technology to to harvest all of this free energy. I mean, someday I'm sure somebody will think of it. As always, we've made it to the end of the episode. Thank you so much for uh, listening to me drone on for half an hour about space vehicles. Uh, I really appreciate all of your listener support on a weekly basis. It means the absolute world to me. If you enjoyed this episode, go back and listen to the Mercury episode. And if you enjoyed these two episodes, go back and listen to the entire back catalog of the show. It is available everywhere Podcasts can be found, including Apple podcast Stitcher, Radio, Public, Pocket Cast, Overcast, Tune In, anything that you can uh download podcasts with, Google Play, any of that stuff, you may find the show. Just search for Knowledge from the Couch Podcast and you will find it. You may search that exact same term on Facebook and find our group there, uh Knowledge from the Couch Podcast. You can follow me personally on Twitter at Kyle Steinhauser. Uh, and you can follow the show's twitter at the couch pod all of these things are ways that you can interact with the show keep up with the show and you know tell me how good you think the show is or how terrible you think the show is either way that's fine um I don't really care either way i I would I would hope I would hope beyond all hope that would you would enjoy the show but if you don't, it is what it is. That is totally fine. But if you do like the show, go ahead and rate it five stars on your favorite podcast app. I would love to get some more of them ratings because the more of those ratings I have, the better the show is exposure-wise to more people. And more people can hear my ridiculous voice on a weekly basis. Guys, after all of that nonsense, next week's episode, the finale of Space Month on the Knowledge from the Couch podcast, episode 35, will have to do with the Apollo program. That one's gonna be a little longer than this one because there's more stuff that went on with the Apollo program. But until then, you guys live long and prosper. I've got faith in the and all of the things I- Chilling with my fam peeps You don't understand me If you listen to my songs a little bit deeper You might release my dreams Or if I release my inner demons That's just a little scary Cause I don't know them But they all know me And that's just a little weird So I keep that to myself I don't have any real hype right now I don't even have a real mic right now But I'm just singing on my laptop Cause I want to So no one else can stop you So just do what you want to do what you want, yeah. Just do what you want to yeah. you, yeah. so, yeah. you know that you don't want to realize yeah. all of the things you.